0: welcome to episode three of ew's binge of harry potter i'm mark snedeker
1: and i'm molly smith
0: and you are joining us today broadcasting live from azkaban
1: azkaban what what
0: where we're all prisoners i think the all the world's a stage and america is azkaban for all intents and is purposes. Is Azkaban,
1: like, basically the Matrix? Because that's what I'm getting right now. It,
0: it's, it's the Matrix. It's the government. It's, it's everything. it's nothing. It's Big nothing.
1: Brother. It's just all of those. It's everywhere.
0: So, Prisoner of Azkaban, book three, movie three. It is the movie where Ron's hair looks great. Um, <laughs> Lies. Hermione, Hermione is blossoming into a young woman. Mm-hmm. And Neville is <laughs> taking a turn for the worst. Oh, uh, yeah. Before he emerges as a hunk in later movies. Um, This book was released July 8th, 1999 in the UK, which, fascinatingly enough, in the US, Chamber of Secrets had just come out in June. So that's not much time to digest it here before the UK gets book three. The US doesn't get Prisoner of Azkaban until September 1999. And then we're all on an equal playing field, finally.
1: Oh, God. What a beautiful time! Beautiful time to be a Potter fan. The movie, meanwhile, um, that came out June fourth, two thousand and four, and interestingly, it was the lowest grossing with seven hundred ninety-six point seven million worldwide. What? But the second highest on Rotten Tomatoes at ninety-one. So that's a little nuts.
0: That's you know what I would, and I, I would go so far as to say that most Potter fans, I can't speak for everyone, but Prisoner of Azkaban is widely regarded actually as the best Harry Potter movie.
1: Well, it's definitely I would say the most artistic. It definitely has a point of view, but I, when I first saw it, didn't like it, I think for that reason, because it was so different from what we'd seen
0: before. Sure.
1: And now I've really come around on it. Like, I really, I like it more and more every time I watch
0: it. It's it's truly um, a work of art, and I think it for sure builds in its beauty as you watch it over the years. Um, and right, who directed it? Alfonso Alfonso Cuaron.
1: Um, who, Gravity. <laughs> he's like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, but also Gravity, Etu Mama Ch- ma
0: Tambien, like <laughs> Children of Men. Yeah, so y tu Mama like- ma Tambien. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Anyway, Prisoner of Azkaban <laughs> is essentially about two threats to Harry. I would say the first is the runaway Sirius Black, who has broken out of the maximum security prison Azkaban, and Harry is led to believe by everyone around him that Sirius is on the loose and out to get him because, as he will later learn, Sirius may have betrayed his parents and led to their deaths. But the second threat is more immediate at home, because they are the Dementors from Azkaban, who are the guards of this prison, and they are now being stationed at Hogwarts, and seem to kind of ruin Harry's day a lot more than anyone else. So he's sort of facing both of these threats as he's going through his third year at Hogwarts,
1: Dementors are just one of many creatures in this film, so we're talking about creatures all episode. It is,
0: you know what, Azkaban really blasts open the wizarding world um, in a really interesting way. Not so much with locations, even though we get Hogsmeade and Azkaban, but it's more about learning about species. You know, if Mm -hmm. Chamber of Secrets showed us about wizard politics and pureblood families and and expansion of people, Prisoner of Azkaban is about expansion of kind of the second layer of creatures and a little bit of dark magic Mm -hmm. we get into and um also introduces us to harry's parent harry's father's friends which will go on to be you know one of the most important groups and and one of the fans most beloved entities are the marauders
1: So because of that, we're going through the biggest creatures in Prisoner of Azkaban. And then later on, we're going to be getting into objects, talking to designers from Mina Lima, Mirafora Mina, and Eduardo Lima. They're talking time turners, Marauder's Map, all that great stuff.
0: They are the designers of basically everything graphic design, as well as a ton of props. They designed pretty much everything you can imagine on Harry Potter that wasn't a building or a castle. So stick around for that chat. Molly, let's get into it. We are going through the 10 biggest, most important, most amazing, what's our adjective here? The best creatures of Prisoner of Azkaban.
1: Want to start off with number 10, Mark?
0: Yes, even though I hate this one. I I genuinely, truly hate this one. But (laughs) number 10 is the shrunken head that (laughs) Harry sees on the night bus. Um... I really don't actually want to talk about the shrunken head, but I really just needed an excuse to get us to the night bus. (laughs) (laughs) So Harry essentially leaves the Dursley's house at the beginning of this book after a temper tantrum. He has spent all summer doing magic under his sheets, if that's what you call it. And then he basically blows up his Aunt Marge, played Mm by Pam Ferris, who was the Trunchbull in Matilda. So he blows her up, essentially, goes all Willy Wonka, sends her out the window, And he leaves. He threatens Uncle Vernon with magic, and Harry is out and winds up on the night bus.
1: So the night bus is essentially a bus that comes around to pick up stranded wizards, you know, ones who can't get around through apparating or flu powder or whatever, they need a ride.
0: Yeah, or if they're underage... Or um, if you're a squib, I guess you could probably take the night bus. Some you people have, take it the What is it with series. you and
1: squibs? You always want to talk about squibs.
0: Squibs are just like the weird bastard child of the Harry Potter universe. <laughs> like, it sucks to be a muggle, but it, I think it sucks more to be a squib. You have to take a bus.
1: And so on the bus, we meet some really interesting characters, aside from the uh, terrible shrunking head. That you Which mentioned. I never want to talk about again. Never again. And um, it's just a
0: movie creation anyway. Yeah. There's it's not a, canon.
1: Driver and the conductor, both of whom are named after Rowling's two grandfathers, Ernest and Stanley.
0: Yeah, Ernie Prang, Stanley Shunpike. So, night bus does actually come into play a few times. You know, not only does it get Harry to the Leaky Cauldron, um, he, you know, he runs away from the Dursleys. I love that he's on his own and he is confident enough now to finally navigate, you know, Diagon Alley by himself. That's mm-hmm. it's a big move for him. That's not glorified that much yet. It really does mean a lot that yeah. he's not a stranger anymore. So, the night bus, super cool. Shrunken Head, just our excuse to talk about it, but that gets us to Harry at the Leaky Cauldron, which is where the second best creature of this movie comes into play. Number nine, The Monster Book of Monsters. What a fun little addition to this. What a terrible addition. Oh my God, if I saw that in person.
1: Well, it's not like I want to be anywhere near this book, but I always found that like such a like great detail.
0: Oh yeah, it's a super cool book. It actually comes to life. Um... You have to, like, tie it with a belt to get it under wraps. It's another birthday gift from Hagrid that Harry absolutely does not want. It's not just Hagrid's fault this time because, well, it is all Hagrid's fault. But but it's because
1: he's a teacher now. It's
0: because he's a teacher. And so, you know, in the theme of Prisoner of Azkaban, it is all about creatures. And a big part of that is because Hagrid is now the Care of Magical Creatures teacher. He replaces Professor, I think, Kettleburn? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of one of the most uncreative names she's had, but, you know, <laughs> still fun, whatever. Bottom of the queue. It's no grubbly plank, I will tell you that much. <laughs> so
1: Hagrid is teaching care of magical creatures, and here's where we meet number eight on our list, which is Buckbeak, the
2: hippogriff. Isn't he beautiful? Say hello to Buckbeak. Hagrid, exactly what is that?
3: That, run is a hippogriff. First thing you want to know about hippogriffs is that they're very proud creatures. Very easily offended. You do not want to insult a hippogriff. It may just be the last thing you ever do.
0: In Hagrid's first COMC class, which I'm not sure if people call it that or not, um, he decides, like, Hagrid just goes in deep. Hagrid does not lean in with a toe in the water. Hagrid cannonballs in with a hippogriff, Mm -hmm. which is half eagle, half horse? Yes. That's wildly unattractive to me.
1: I actually find Buckbeak to be really
0: regal. He is quite regal. I mean, he's much more regal than, like, what, a giant squid? A yeah. mandrake? <laughs> like, um... Everything
1: bull- is more regal than a mandrake.
0: Right. Except, like, but, like, blast-ended scroot. <laughs> like, there is a whole world of creatures. Fantastic beasts, if you will. Mm-hmm. And Buckbeak, yes. A hippogriff is truly the most regal, aside from Hedwig.
1: And, of course, they're very proud creatures. You have to show them a lot of respect, which is kind of where the trouble happens in this scene. Hagrid brings Harry in to sort of familiarize him with hippogriffs, and he has to show a lot of respect, and Buckbeak eventually warms up to him. You have to bow.
0: I think what's interesting about this lesson is that, and about Buckbeak, is that Harry found another innate ability here. We were talking in Sorcerer's Stone about how he immediately picks up flying. It's something he inherited from his father. And I like to think that Lily, Harry's mother, being so kind and so gentle, that's what we know about her, um, I think that's where Harry gets his ability to interact with animals. Because if you think about it, over the whole series, Harry's actually pretty amazing with animals very, very quickly. Um, Fox, the phoenix, Buckbeak here. The Thestrals. The Thestrals in book five. Hedwig, of course. Harry always finds a way to kind of reconcile the wildness of these beasts and it's really one of the most underrated talents he has that's
1: a really good point I mean all of these things I feel like I've noticed but I hadn't thought about them in relation to one another but he really does have a knack for it and maybe that's part of why he and Hagrid get along so
0: well yeah I mean God knows Hagrid loves these animals Mm -hmm. but of
1: course on the flip side Harry's nemesis Draco just doesn't even know how to handle Buckbeak.
0: Right. Buckbeak literally flies Harry around the castle, and yet he lands. Everybody claps like, oh, my God, classic Harry. (laughs) Taking the animal out of class for a ride around the castle. But then Draco, yeah, pisses Buckbeak off, as he is wont to do. And so Buckbeak slashes him. And it's blamed on Hagrid. Oh, it was
1: well-deserved. It's and such also, an
0: injustice. It pisses me off. Sorry Draco, to say
1: that. Draco is especially whiny in this one.
0: He is. And his hair is parted in a stupid way. He's just... He's just <laughs> this I is, mean,
1: they're like 13 now, so weird stuff was bound to happen. Yeah.
0: Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban relegates Draco just to the background of annoying bully. Mm-hmm. There's no deeper um, heart here. It's just... He's just trash. But... So we leave Buckbeak now in peril because Jaco's father did hear about this.
1: And he won't stand to have Buckbeak stay around any longer. And number seven on our list is of course Dementors, which is a creature that Harry just <laughs> on the very flip side of Hippogriffs does not get along with at all.
0: Dementors, I am super into because I'm so knotted to them. Um, <laughs> dementors are like the big villain here and we never really get, much of an explanation throughout the series of what they are besides this kind of sentient spectral being i mean they are such a key figure throughout the entire series and yet you know if somebody asked me to write down 10 trivia facts about dementor i would think well okay they have a very high thread count Um, (laughs) they're like 90 percent cloak they suck your soul out And they're the guards of Azkaban. I really, really, what more do you need to know?
1: So we first meet Dementors when they're riding the train into Hogwarts and it gets icy and cold and chilly and Ron's freaking out, which, by the way, Ron's freakouts are some of my favorite
0: Well, it's like spiders. This time it's like, I thought I would never be cheerful again. Yeah. Like, all right, Ron. A little dramatic,
1: but they're 13 again. So anyways, the Dementors come onto the train looking for escaped prisoner Sirius Black and Harry faints. He can't handle it. It affects him more than other people because of the traumas of his past.
0: Which I never bought. I mean, right, Harry at one point straight up asks Professor Lupin, why do the dementors affect me? And his explanation is exactly that, that Harry had just had this traumatic past and that's why he hears his mother's voice. But a lot of Harry Potter hinges on the idea that Harry is the most damaged at Hogwarts. He's the only one with a crazy past why is Neville not fainting every single day? That's a a good point. So I really never liked that, um, you know, Harry truly was affected the most.
1: Well, I see your point. However, there aren't many other kids in the series that we know of, at least, who had his unique set of experiences, you know? and And the threat, Voldemort, who of course killed his parents, like the threat is becoming more and more real. You know, at this point, we don't know that he's, back but Harry's interacted with him and it's like a reminder that his trauma is still there so maybe that's part of it Uh,
0: maybe I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Voldemort has anything to do with it right now but I don't know I do think Dementors should really be screwing up a lot more people than Harry I'll take that but as, as of now you know he's the only one who's affected by it Malfoy's making fun of him um, a Dementor legitimately makes him fall off his broom and breaks his broom, which flies into the Whomping Willow
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, during the Quidditch game. So Dementors are definitely giving Harry trouble, but thankfully he has Professor Lupin to help him through it. And that kind of brings us to Magical Creature number 6, which is something even less defined than a Dementor, which is a Bogart. And Boggarts are... Foggers are the worst. I mean, quite literally, they're the worst. They're the
1: worst because they're They're the scariest thing to the individual because, of course, they're shapeshifters. So they're going to adjust their shape to whatever scares you the most.
0: Yeah, and I love how they know it. I mean, I hate how they know it. I basically have decided I hate all of the magical creatures. Well, it's like the <laughs> Prisoner of Azkaban. It's I? like
1: the character that you love to hate, right? Like you admire their abilities, but you don't want to get anywhere near a bogart. Well, well
0: bogarts are are crazy. So they hide in small spaces. Um, they let you know where they are by shaking and rattling. They are quite literally nothing. No one has ever seen one because if you saw one, it would immediately take you know your fears form. They say you're supposed to approach them in groups so that it confuses them which fear to take. So it will like just turn into, if you and I both saw a Boggart right now, it would turn into, I don't know, what. what's your, <laughs> Molly, what's your deepest fear?
1: The 4.05 at 5 p.m. on a Friday night.
0: Ooh, L.A. humor. <laughs> and mine is clowns. Clowns slash spiders. <laughs> so we, if a Boggart saw us, we it would see a clown car filled with spiders stuck in traffic on an L.A. highway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you confuse a bogart, but it is quite literally nothing and it's also one of these items in the world that J.K. Rowling also has decided is is kind of nothing. She didn't even really explain it in all of her foibles on Twitter and Pottermore. She just says that there are apparently a few famous bogarts, which is also frightening.
1: Yeah, no, definitely frightening, but as much as we don't like Bogarts, I do really like the scene where Lupin is teaching them how to confront Bogarts. Yes, you know where you see Neville step up and Snape turns into into his grandmother basically. And love can Grant. you imagine? Uh, I just would have loved to have been on the set that day, seeing Alan Rickman dressed in grandmother clothes.
0: Ugh, can you imagine? Ugh. I would love it. Um, this scene is great though because it's Lupin allowing Harry to confront his fears, but in sort of a controlled environment. I do take issue with a few things here, though. There's a big discrepancy between the movie and book, in Prisoner of Azkaban. When Lupin steps in front of Harry to defend him from a Dementor that he can't ridiculous into oblivion, Mm -hmm. in the book, that Bogart turns into a glowing orb, right? Which we will later learn is the moon because he's a werewolf. But at the moment, we don't know. We just think, oh, what's this weird glowing orb? And it's really only Hermione that kind of realizes it. But in the movie... It's a straight up moon. It's good night moon. It's a moon and clouds. Like it's <laughs> a legit moon emoji. Like mm-hmm. it's obvious. So it did take away a little bit of um, what I love about the Harry Potter books, which is the piecing together of clues and then going back and going, "Oh my god!" So it was a little, a little on the nose, a little yeah, on the moon. I,
1: I see what you're saying, but I, I don't think it's so offensive that I'm like, you know, totally, upset about it.
0: Totally. But um, it's also key because. It's interesting that Lupin didn't want Harry to face a Boggart at first because he thought it would be Voldemort. Yeah. And when it turned into a Dementor, it made things click for Lupin, and he realized Harry's afraid of fear itself, which, okay. Very I, deep. Like, that's, like a, that's, a, that's a leap, but <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. But the Boggarts are also great because Lupin is able to use them to teach Harry the only way you can defend yourself from a Dementor, which is? The
1: Patronus spell. EXPECTO PATRONUM! Which, here's the thing, I feel like having read a bit more about this on Pottermore, it's actually a really hard spell to conjure, but I feel like we see it so much in the Potter movies that I feel a little bit desensitized to it. Like, I forgot how hard it is to conjure that.
0: Yeah, I mean, by book five, everybody's doing their Patronuses. They're jumping all around, and you got otters and rabbits and bears. And But, um, you know, it, it is a hard spell. I can only imagine how many times Daniel Radcliffe had to say those words in... An empty office and an empty room. Like if he
1: had a nickel, that's how he made his Potter millions. Yeah, all of his money (laughs) is from just like
0: the Patronus jar every time he had to cast that damn spell. But right, you're supposed to like think of your happy thoughts. But here's another thing I love about Prisoner of Azkaban is that Alfonso Cuaron so wisely crafted this movie because when Harry is fighting this giant swath of Dementors at the end of the film... He calls upon all these happy moments, which have been laced throughout the film so that the audience can realize, oh, these are his happy moments. Being with Ron and Hermione when they throw snowballs at Malfoy in Hogsmeade or the first night back for the school year where all the Gryffindor boys are in the tower eating candy, making animal noises. I just love that. I think it's such a nice touch that you don't realize until the end of the film. These weren't just throwaway moments. These were actually the most important moments. Now we're on to number five, our fifth magical creature in Prisoner of Azkaban, the Grim. The Grim is not actually a thing. It's more of a sentient being. It's an omen, widely known in the wizarding world as taking the shape of a big black dog and meant to mean death. So if you see a Grim, you die. It's woefully inconvenient, given the fact that Sirius Black, escapee from Azkaban, has decided to use his animagis form and become a black dog.
1: Right? Like, he has just a series of bad luck in, in this film. He has
0: the world at his fingertips, the world of animals at his fingertips. One would think that, if anything, don't become the most famous omen of death in the Wizarding World. Like That's choose, true. Choose a gray dog. Choose a white dog. Don't choose a black dog if it's known to be, like, the omen of death.
1: But here's the thing, and this is something we'll get into a little bit later. You can't choose... Your animagus. It reflects your personality, which is why everyone should have been real suspect about Peter Pettigrew when his animagus was a rat.
0: Wait, so you just learn animagusness? <laughs> Being an animagi, you learn that spell, and that's when you find out. It's like taking a Pottermore quiz. Like, oops, guess basically, find out it's I'm like a rat. sort
1: of taking the shape of an. You become the animal that's already kind of in you, almost. You know, I mean, James Potter is a stag. He's like this brave kind of you know
0: stag like man
1: stag like man so it makes sense that he becomes that and and sirius is fiercely loyal he goes on to say later in the film that he would die for his friends like it makes sense that he's a dog you know it's just really terrible luck for him yeah
0: that is pretty bad luck um although you know there's obviously some foreshadowing here in the name alone sirius is the name of uh the dog star in the um dog <laughs> the dog constellation, the great dog constellation, Canis Major.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, babe. It's a constellation in the southern celestial hemisphere.
1: So Harry keeps seeing this dog everywhere, this black dog who he thinks is the Grim. It's actually serious. And his divination professor, Professor Sybil Trelawney, is no help. She's she really not helping this. Like putting like fanning the fire, right. adding to the flames. Well she's the one
0: who tells him That is a grim in your teacup. They're doing tessomancy, which is divination, like tea leaves. Um, Let's, yeah, let's talk Trelawney for a second.
1: Emma Thompson is delightful in this. Oh,
0: she's so good. I love Emma versus Emma. Um, My favorite thing about Prisoner of Azkaban, truly my favorite thing, is how much Hermione hates divination. Like, (laughs) Hermione, she of logic, she of rationalization, she of numbers, hates divination she calls it quote a very woolly discipline
2: my dear from the first moment you stepped foot in my class i sensed that you did not possess the proper spirit for the noble art of divination no you see uh uh, you
1: may be young in years but the heart that beats beneath your
2: bosom is as shriveled as an old maid's. your soul as dry as the pages of the books to which you so desperately cleave.
0: I mean, she eventually (laughs) storms out and drops that class, and I don't think there's any punishment for her. It's really
1: just like a clashing of ideas, you know, because she's so logical. Trelawney's so much more spiritual, and there's a really great scene about that.
0: Yeah. So let's talk Trelawney for a second. She is a Ravenclaw. She comes from a long line of seers um, that have been pretty diluted in their power over the years. But um, Rowling even said, I only ever had a vague idea of what happened to the divination teacher before she washed up at Hogwarts. She said that Trelawney probably tried to find employment, tried to use her gift, but obviously nobody's just going to trust this random homeless lady who says she can see the future. Um, She's also a drunk, which I love. And similar to Hermione, McGonagall also hates her, um, which I always wonder, what, (laughs) what other teachers do you think hate each other? Like, Ooh. we know everyone kind of Like, what is the
1: Hogwarts professor drama? Yeah,
0: does Snape, does Snape have a friend? Like, is he friends with Filch? I feel like he's kind of friends with Filch.
1: I don't think Snape really has any friends. I don't think he has any friends. I think that I like... he has Dumbledore as a confidant, but yeah. I wouldn't even say that they're friends. I
0: think Flitwick and Professor Sprout are probably friends.
1: I bet you they throw the best Hogwarts teacher parties.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I also They're think... They're so
1: eccentric, you know?
0: Yeah. I also think maybe they probably hooked up once or twice. <laughs> um, Professor Binns is probably, <laughs> like, McGonagall's best friend, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> like her best friend would be a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really it. Hagrid does not have adult friends. Hagrid only has children friends. And Madam Hooch... Oh, you know who throws back? Madam Hooch, Madam Pince, and Madame Pomfrey. All the madams... They love to throw ragers in the hospital wing. They fly around on brooms.
1: Right. And like when clock strikes five, they like beeline to the three broomsticks and just throw them back. Yeah, it's, fi- it. it's five o'clock
0: it. in some castle. Yeah. <laughs> so Trelawney, much as she is a joke, she actually is legit here because fraud as she is, um, she sometimes has these prophecies that actually really matter. And one super interesting one here um, that the Internet has pointed out is that in this book during prisoner of azkaban christmas is very um kind of sparsely attended so everyone sits at one table for those who stay for christmas dinner so ron's there and harry's there and they're sitting at the table with dumbledore and a few other teachers there's 12 of them and trelawney is invited by dumbledore dumbledore stands up to invite her and she says quote if i join the table we shall be 13. nothing could be more unlucky Never forget that when 13 dine together, the first to rise will be the first to die. So she isn't; she hasn't joined the table yet. She says she'll be the 13th. But, in fact, Scabbers was in Ron's pocket, Scabbers being a real human being, and Dumbledore rose and was the first to rise at the table of 13.
1: Oh. My. God. Yeah,
0: so the internet definitely got that one right. Dumbledore died three books later. Oh! <gasps> And the same thing actually happens in book five, Sirius Rises, when they're all having dinner at Grimmauld Place. Isn't that crazy?
1: I like, this is like when I found out Nick Cage is with Coppola. Like, that's always my frame of reference <laughs> for when I'm, yeah. you know, surprised about something.
0: Totally, man. So, yeah.
1: Wow. Civil Trelawney. Wow, maybe
0: uh, maybe hire her for your next bar mitzvah because she's she gets it right sometimes. <laughs> so number four um, is a creature. <laughs> I'd like to think it's the fat lady. Fat lady's not new. She's and and she's also two different actresses in in the first movie and the third movie.
1: She's not new, but she's really significant in this film.
0: Yeah, and she's been around forever. She was at least a portrait entrance to the Gryffindor tower in the '60s because she is famously told off the Weasley parents um, for being like little romantics. I love the fat lady. She sits there drinking wine, literally like vats of wine. There's a monk painting she likes to go to and drink vats of wine with her friend Violet. She drinks wine, she visits her friends, she sleeps, she has control over an entire tower. Honestly, if I could be anyone in Harry Potter, it would probably be the fat lady.
1: How do you think the fat lady feels about being called
0: the fat lady? I think she would have changed the connotation over the years, like if she could. But I mean, look, she she can't love it. We've come so far since you know the fifteen hundreds. I like to think. <laughs> I like to think we've made a little progress. Um, I do love how she gets annoyed when she has to open the portrait. Like
1: right, like you're bothering mu- me to do my only job.
0: Well, it's like what muscle are you using? Yeah. Like is like what? How are you opening the portrait? Is it is it like a getting up thing? Anyway, she it does have a huge role in this because when the kids are all at Hogsmeade during Halloween, she gets attacked.
1: Yeah, they return to see the fat lady's portrait just completely scratched and she's... Slashed. Slashed, just destroyed. And so she's run over to another painting where she's hiding out and Dumbledore's like, what happened, what happened? And she tells them that Sirius Black attacked her.
0: Yeah, so big moment for the fat lady. She's so traumatized and her portrait is sent off to like get fixed which takes a long time considering it's magic it's not like they're going to like the old man in toy story 2 who fixes woody yeah (laughs) and then she's replaced by sir cadogan Mm -hmm. or cadigan or cadbury whatever and he's super fun but yeah fat lady big moment book three movie three so we mentioned hogsmeade that brings us to number three creature Madame Rosemurda, <laughs> who is another, like, actual human that we're calling Actual human.
1: And this time, okay, fat lady, she's a painting. Madame Rosemurda is a straight-up human. She's a
0: real person. And she's kind of a sex sexpot. Every teen boy in Harry Potter is attracted to her. Hermione's like, Ron, what are you looking at? And he goes, nothing. And then she says, nothing is going to get more fire with <laughs> me. She's described as a curvy woman with a pretty face. She is the bartender and owner at The Three Broomsticks. Fun fact, she's played in the movie by Julie Christie, who is an Oscar winner. She uh, won for 1965's Darling, and you know her from, like, Dr. Zhivago and a ton of other movies. She was also nominated recently. And... It's definitely one of those throwaway roles, like this Oscar-winning British actress got the role of Madame Rose Myrta. Like Everyone else got a cool professor, and she got Madame Rosemurta.
1: Yeah, but you love Madame Rosemurta, and you also love Hogsmeade, and I need you to tell me about your feelings. Yeah, really,
0: I only want to talk about Hogsmeade here. Hogsmeade is the only entirely non-Muggle settlement in Britain. It was founded in the 980s. Like so, you could say it was founded in the eighties. Truly, yeah. you just are talking about the nine eighties and not the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. By Hengist of Woodcroft, a Hufflepuff. I also think we should probably start a list of famous Hufflepuffs in keeping with our defense of the house. Oh, uh, we definitely that's should. Not just terrible. I love Hogsmeade because it's just like it's delightful. It's like a little Christmas card. It's an escape.
1: It feels like it's in a snow globe. Totally. Which is also kind of how I think about Boston.
0: <laughs> totally. <laughs> And it's expand, it expands the world in a, in a safe way. Obviously, Harry gets there through interesting means. He gets there because of the Marauder's Map, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But Hogsmeade is just great because it's the first sort of playground for Harry, and there's so much there. Um, it's important here because Harry learns that Sirius is his godfather, which he finds out by being at Madame Rosmerta's pub Overhearing a bunch of Hogwarts professors and Hagrid talking about it, actually Hagrid is a professor, but I mean, let's.
1: But be real. he's like always he's the, the uncle most, in our heart. He's
0: the most unhinged person at that school, and we're gonna put him in charge of a class of magical creatures. Anyways, <laughs> Harry is in Hogsmeade, overhears the Sirius to his godfather. That's the big function here before we get back to Hogsmeade. But Molly, I want to play a quick game with you about All right. Hogsmeade. I'm ready. We know Hogsmeade doesn't have a Chipotle. We know it does not have a community theater. But we do know it has a post office, an Owlery. We know it has a bunch of stores. And I'm going to quiz you. Tell me what objects are sold at these Hogsmeade stores.
1: I'm really hoping for a chance at redemption here. So bring it.
0: Okay. Molly, what kind of magical objects are sold at Gladrags?
1: Rags? <laughs> <Rex? laughs>
0: okay. Wizarding wear.
1: Wizarding wear. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All See, right. I just...
0: Context let's, clues.
1: Let's give what? a little clarity as for magical objects. like Because wizarding wear, that's technically just clothes. It doesn't have to be something Yeah, like, but just
0: what's sold at these things.
1: Okay. You know? All right. I'm ready. All right. Question number two.
0: Number two. What kind of items are sold at Dogweed and Deathcap? Oh,
1: my God. Oh. Uh, is it like a dispensary? Dogweed. Yes. Is it really?
0: I mean, <laughs> not in so many words. It's herbology supplies. Oh wow! So yeah, okay. if you think of like gillyweed or a lot of mushrooms have cap in the word. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Oh, good girl. All Dang, right. One for one. Go or one me. for two. I rock. What <laughs> is sold at Madame Putterfoots? It's Madame not very magical, but it is. Romantic. Not very magical, it's but romantic. something.
1: Oh, romantic. Uh, is it like couples
0: massages? Close. It's tea. But it is where, you know, Harry and Cho have coffee there. McGonagall was actually proposed to there. Oh. Yeah, that's a story uh, for another day.
1: What I would give for a McGonagall prequel.
0: So you're two for three. Okay. No, you're one for three. I'm like one and a
1: half, yeah. One and a half. But still better than last week.
0: Massages and tea kind of go together, don't they? (laughs) Um, What sold at the Magic (laughs) Neep? If it helps, neep means turnip in Scottish.
1: Neep means turnip in Scottish.
0: It, like Old Scottish. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, not like actual. Like, it's old, an Old Scottish word. You Maybe know J.K. Rowling was, is correct. Is uh,
1: it like a garden of some kind?
0: Kind of. It's a greengrocer. grocer. It's just oh, a grocery okay. store. All, All right. right. So I'm going to give you another half.
1: I, yeah, so two, two for four. Two for four.
0: Okay. But you're up there. You're getting there. Um, Spint witches.
1: Is this like a like a knitting store?
0: Sporting needs.
1: I was <laughs> close. You know what? Knitting could be argued as a sport. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, and then the last one, Scriven Chefs. Oh,
1: God. Can I get a hint on this one?
0: Scriv. Not helpful. <laughs> it's a quill shop. Oh. Ugh. Yeah, I, it's like the Latin root, you know. Anyway, I, okay, so you can. I did, took all right. Spanish
1: in high school.
0: Your map of Hogsmeade is slightly filled in. Also, did you know there's a local branch of Ollivanders there? Did no. you know he franchised?
1: No, I didn't know I that. I love that. Do we know how many shops he had?
0: No, but we do, we do know that he... Uh, was ambitious and looking to grow his um, retail cachet.
1: All right. So, Mark, you mentioned the Marauders map earlier, and that's what brought Harry to Hogsmeade, and it also is what introduced him to number two on our list, Scabbers.
0: And double whammy. I think we should. I think we should do Scabbers plus my man, Crookshanks. Crookshanks. We can just get through real quick. Crookshanks is Hermione's cat. She bought him with his birthday money. He terrorized Scabbers, Ron's rat and led to a little falling out briefly in the book um, where none of them are talking to Hermione because Crookshanks is just a pain in the ass. I did always want to know what Crookshanks thought about everything. Crookshanks is along for this journey, this series, but he's not important because Scabbers is important. Molly, who is Scabbers?
1: So Scabbers is Ron's rat of 12 years, as you mentioned, and 12 is a suspiciously long, years. long life for a rat. And there's a reason for all of these things, because Scabbers is actually Peter Pettigrew in his Animagus
0: form. That's disgusting. If you're going to be an Animagus, do not be a human's pet, especially a boy. What what has Scabbers seen?
1: I was gonna say couldn't he have been like a field rat, but then you have to deal with like owls. A field and stuff. rat? What is like this, you're Like you're much better off City being Mouse? a house pet.
0: <laughs> yeah, like yeah, what's that, like Wind of the Willows? <laughs> yeah, Peter Pettigrew could have made a perfectly good life. I don't know why he decided to become a Weasley.
1: I mean, it's not like he would have been much better off at like the Malfoy manor, you know.
0: Well wouldn't he have though if he went and confided in them? I mean, he was in hiding, but he wasn't in hiding from like Death Eaters. Like, he should have gone and embraced them.
1: Yeah, but they're all kind of cowards, you
0: know? Yeah, I mean, so Peter Pettigrew decided his best course of action was to just go become, like, a house pet mm-hmm. um, for the Weasleys. And, yeah, he comes into play here in a big way because he is thought to be dead. But Harry sees him on the Marauder's Map one night, tells Lupin about it, and that launches our entire climax, which truly is the single best... I think, sequence in Harry Potter. It's
1: thrilling. It's one of the best mysteries, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, halfway through the movie is the first time we see Harry, Ron, and Hermione in their, like, Act 3 clothes, which there's still another hour left in the film, and we know they're about to go through half of this journey and then redo it all over again because of the time-turner, right? So this is not a creature. This is just the most incredible object. The time-turner essentially... All the ways we revisit the climax of this movie with the Whomping Willow, and there's, I mean, I don't even know how to, there's so much that goes on here, we're not going to do it justice. But we end up at the Shrieking Shack, and that confrontation between Pettigrew and Lupin and Sirius, if you think about it, they're really never in the same room again. It's true. It's kind of a rare, beautiful moment that you don't appreciate until you finish the series right. and realize. like
1: a rare coming together of characters. Yeah,
0: and they all see Harry, and they're all a little taken aback by the similarity to James. It's kind of a really beautiful, amazing thing. But um, I do love it. I always wondered what the equivalent of Pettigrew betraying the Marauders would be for Harry. You know, it wouldn't be, it, I mean, it could be Ron and Hermione. I think it would maybe be like I don't Neville think, selling them out.
1: Yeah, but I don't think Neville is, like, as part of the crew as the Marauders were, you know? Like, Neville's definitely their friend, but it's not like, they're a threesome, they're not a foursome. Yeah,
0: right. But it's like Ron and Hermione would never, although I'm sure they thought Peter Pettigrew would never. Yeah. But this is why I think the entire Harry Potter series is basically a tale about what happens when you nickname your friend Wormtail. <laughs>
1: And when his Animagus is a rat. I mean, really, the writing is on right. the wall.
0: Right. Did you not Did you not think, oh, maybe this means something?
1: But you know, what's interesting about that foursome there is that James and Sirius weren't super inclined to take Peter on as a friend. But Lupin, being a werewolf, which we're about to get into, he was sort of a little kinder to the outsiders, you know, and welcomed Peter. And then his other two friends did as a result. So yeah. not saying that Lupin brought this on himself, but like... Maybe a little bit.
0: Yeah. I also love that the Shrieking Shack is where Lupin went to just like howl it out. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I always wondered if other if other people kind of went to the Shrieking Shack to, to get some other Right? Like out. you've had
1: a really bad day I'm... and you just need to scream, you go to the Shrieking Shack.
0: Yeah. If you're trying to impress a girl, you just went to Madame Puddyfoot's tea shop and you're like, yo, girl, yo, I know a place. I know a shack.
1: Oh my god. Um, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. So,
0: you said it yourself. Our number one best creature in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is a werewolf, Lupin, which really, I guess, shouldn't be number one. It really should be Sirius the dog. But, you know, I like to consider them both included here.
3: Wait, wait.
2: Professor? Professor Lupin.
3: Oh, stop it. Oh, stop it. There you are.
1: There wouldn't be serious as an animagus, as a dog, if Lupin hadn't been a werewolf, because all of his friends transform as a result of that.
0: Yeah, they were supporting him. And, you know, the werewolf transformation is. A really great artistic move in the film by Alfonso. He zooms in on the eye and then pulls back. It's very old school horror, mm-hmm. like very classic shot. And just this climax is great. It's Sirius really stands up for them. Snape even stands up for them against this werewolf. It's another great moment of what did Hermione learn? She put it together that Lupin was a werewolf. Yeah, she um, figured it out. From Snape's essay mm-hmm. and from the Bogart. The werewolf is just sort of this great culmination. I always found it fascinating that Rowling never decided to make Remus as werewolf like sympathetic. You know how sometimes in a film somebody transforms and, you know, Harry could go up to him and put his hand on his head and say, It's me, it's me. Like, no, Remus was just always dangerous.
1: If you know his backstory, I think that adds a lot of sympathy to his character, because essentially his father encountered Fenrir Greyback, who we'll meet later on in the books and the films, and basically said something along the lines about how werewolves are horrible and don't deserve to live. So Fenrir goes and attacks Lupin, and that's how he became, and the, Lupin is a child at this point, that's how he became a werewolf. Ugh, that's and so he grows up, he's this little kid werewolf, and his parents are keeping him isolated because he knows that people won't, they know that people won't accept him as that creature, And he thinks he's never going to have friends, never going to go to school. And eventually Dumbledore does reach out to him. And he's like, hey, you thought you couldn't come to Hogwarts, but you can come to Hogwarts. But we're just going to send you off to an isolated location where you can do your werewolf thing. Isn't that sad?
0: It is sad. The other interesting thing about Lupin is that J.K. Rowling recently revealed that his werewolf condition is actually a metaphor for people with illnesses that carry stigmas. So... HIV and AIDS. She wrote about this in her new book, Short Stories from Hogwarts of Heroism, Hardship, and Dangerous Hobbies. She gets into the life of Lupin and she kind of got some heat here for, I suppose, an overly simplified comparison of otherness, maybe yeah. is the way to put it. But I, I do like it. You know, I, I don't necessarily know if that's the right metaphor to say that it's representative of the AIDS crisis. You know, the wizarding community, she says, is prone to hysteria and prejudice. And the character of Lupin gave me a chance to examine those attitudes. So, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you watch the film or read the book, and for me at least, I didn't necessarily come to that conclusion immediately, but you definitely get the sense of him being sort of rejected by the community. How, how he does leave Hogwarts because he knows that parents won't accept him as a werewolf. So, for me, it... Yeah, I see how it's about that, but I think it's about so many other things, just how being different can be very isolating, too.
0: Right. So, yeah, exactly what she says. Like, yeah. it's, it's he's really representative of stigma in the wizarding world, you know. So, what a note to end on. Um, that was really deep, Mark. <laughs> that was quite deep. But um, so is Prisoner of Azkaban as a whole. A beautiful movie, beautiful book. And, um, you know, who else is pretty deep? us when we're interviewing Mina Lima. Joining us now on the line are Eduardo Lima and Mirafora Mina.
1: Thank you guys again very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Uh, Mark and I want to start with what were your overall responsibilities on the Potter films and what were you in charge of?
2: So, well, as graphic designers for film, it can cover anything from Um, principally featured hand props, which would be something that is scripted and would be basically in the hands of the actors and help describe the story in a very direct way. So, for example, in Harry Potter, it might be the Marauder's Map, uh, some of the books that the characters would have had um, to have in in a particular scene, the Daily Prophet newspapers. Um, And then, so that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end is any of the scenic requirements for the set. So on a much broader scale, it might be um, w- floor designs, wallpaper design, uh, basically applied pattern. So and even sometimes things like um, sign writing for uh, for shop fronts. So although we wouldn't have to actually execute them, we would come up with the designs in terms of choosing the right typeface, um, and, and then somewhere in between those. Two extremes, because obviously the scenic one is quite background. Um, You've got all the extra props for the set that help describe a scene. So, for example, in the Weasley shop, um, a lot of the product wouldn't actually have been featured in in the action, but we had to create every single brand that or every single article of. Uh, products that would have been sold in that shop that had been branded by the Weasley twins. So you kind of covering a little bit of branding as well. So it's quite broad, but at the center of everything is the story. So It's quite important and
3: quite a responsibility because we needed to give the identity for lots of organizations like the Minutes of Magic, Hogwarts, um, all those non-establishments that we had to create the logo and the look.
2: And try and keep ourselves out of it as a as a kind of, you know, from a style point of view. Because obviously, um, we're having to get into the head of those characters or those institutions, and and bring those personalities and characteristics uh, to play in 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 telling the story visually. Sure.
0: Did you guys figure out? I mean, it seems to me like you really nailed the aesthetic of of specifically the graphic design. So let's just sort of start there with all those lovely fonts and that sort of typographic world. It seems to me you figured out that aesthetic pretty early on um, with the, the first movie even, with The Daily Prophet and Harry's letter from Hogwarts. Was that the case? Do you feel like you cracked it early? Or was there a movie when you felt like you really had landed on what you wanted for this aesthetic?
2: To be honest, at the beginning, we—I don't think anyone in any department realised quite what they were getting into in terms of the whole, for want of a better word, franchise um, and an identity of it. And so, I think the first couple of films we were probably trying to feel our way a little bit in terms of setting up a style. And also, we none of us knew that we were going to be working on two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films. It, we did one, and then then maybe the next, next one happened. And so it was, the first two were definitely a kind of, yeah, just trying to be reactive to the story and, and the script. Um, and I think by the third film, we all started to realize that there was an identity that retrospectively we had actually established. And it was then quite reassuring to know that we had this kind of language that we'd perhaps inadvertently set up um, I think that was reflected in all the departments as well, even with
3: Stewart, no i think he part of three he felt okay we are getting things are
2: consolidated and and don't forget we're only a, you know there's a, there's a lot to do in graphics, but we're we're a very very sort of specific department, like lots of other ones are on this scale of of filmmaking
0: how do you uh how do you describe that language you know like what um how would you put into words what influences you sort of drew from and and what that language uh, yeah, what was sort of your your short pitch for what that language was?
2: <laughs> I, I, I can see it, it's funny because we, it, you know, to be completely sport we're very spoiled in film because we don't have to pitch things, but we pitch with each with ourselves in terms of like, you know, what, what do we want? How do we want this to to go? Which direction do we want to take this? And I think we very early on we did decide that although Harry Potter was set in the present day in order to help the viewers and readers really feel that they were in this fictional place that was outside of a a present day reality. Um, We would refer to different periods in historical uh, aesthetic and and, um, visuals to inform each particular situation. So it might have been a more constructivist, sort of Russian constructivist reference for the Ministry of Magic towards the sixth and seventh film when it it started to get very dogmatic and and political um, and that style suited the story. And then it might have been something much more uh, lyrical and um, romantic for, say, the early Daily Prophet before that happened. And for some of the books that needed to look extremely valuable and historical, like A History of Magic or Beadle the Bard, so I think we were quite fortunate in, in a funny way, because we're not, we don't tend to do films that are set in the present day. And ironically, Harry Potter was set in the present day. But, but we were able, like the architecture and, and the design around us, um, we were able to pick these different periods of time. Sometimes it was like 1950s things, so maybe Umbridge's book when she was trying to mm. um, stamp out any development of the children's education. Um, she used this sort of very childish books uh, to, to kind of dumb them down, and so we looked at like, 1940s and, and 50s style that was quite sort of simplified. So it, that was really our, our ethos. Our visual ethos was to, to look at different period styles and and try and find the right one to help the story. And that even though if the story wasn't set in that period, that makes sense. And I think the other thing that's really Common to, uh, other to the, the whole visual in, in the film is that, um, and this happened in the architecture as well, is that, um, and, and, in, and in the literature, which I think is why it works, why people feel they can identify so closely with Harry Potter, is that everything is informed by a reality and then twisted only a little bit, say 20%, into this fictional, bizarre world, rather than completely turning reality on its head and having. Um, a, a fantasy situation. If you look at all the visuals that we created, they are all anchored in a very, you know, the newspapers are very um, based on a typographic layout that you'd find typically in a newspaper, but then you might find really strange headlines or slightly warped realities. So I, I think that was the other thing that was a, an ethos that we, w- that we stuck by and we continue to by in all our in our designs now that for the wizarding world
1: right um, and and one of your items that is a bit more twisted and i would say more fantastical is of course a marauder's map um we're really curious about that one because it's so prominent in in prisoner of azkaban and it's a really active piece of work you have how did you approach that and and were you involved in the end credit sequence at all
2: yes yes both to both of us <laughs> so well, what happened with the, with the map is we started off knowing what we didn't want, which was that we didn't want it to be a kind of treasure island, burnt edges, kind of whimsical in that sense um, piece. And we thought about, again, going back to what I said before, who would have created this? So these, these four characters were very uh, cunning and, and intelligent and, and crafty in what they were doing with this map. So, um, again, we went back to look at some reference and, and I found some lovely, I think it was 17th, 18th century illustrations that were completely made out of words. And that just that idea seemed to fit perfectly what they might have done as these kind of cheeky characters yeah. as, as students. So um, so they were kind of marrying something intelligent and informed with something kind of um cheeky and and fun Um, and then the other thing was that we wanted to reflect the fact that the school in its architecture was quite complex and I know in those early films the kids are always a bit confused you know the staircases are moving left and right and they never quite know what floor they're on and you know it feels quite overwhelming the the actual geography and space of uh, Hogwarts and we kind of wanted to feel that so the fact that it's got these flaps and different layers that you can unfold and you're never quite sure where you are um, was, was definitely a, a decision based on the architecture as well as the actual, if you look at the layout of, of the lettering, of the hand lettering that we did, um, it's an exact trace um, in terms of form of the architecture that Stuart Craig had was drawing at the same time for the set. So, so that it does look credible as a map it's not just a load of lettering. If you look closely, you'll see that there are walls and window shapes and um, that that actually reflect, for example, Dumbledore's office. And um, So, there's, it, again, it needs to be anchored in, in a credible situation visually. So that was a really... Plus, we knew we had to make loads of them, so it actually, from a reproduction point of view, it was made in a way that could be done on an A3 photocopier.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, th- there's also there's also a very um, famous kind of Easter egg I think in the map credit sequence I think there's a couple kissing that a lot of fans have picked up on do you guys uh,
2: do you have any intel about that yeah, but but actually I mean, much would like to take credit for that yeah, we've we done in post-production so whilst we supplied the, the <laughs> font the design for all the, the the title sequence. I think somebody got a bit carried away there. <laughs> in, in the visual effect, in the um, post production. But it's religion. because
3: it kind of yeah. illustrated what the map is yeah. all about.
2: No? It, it's, it's nice that it yeah that it it went um totally. it went all that way. And I think there's probably a few other hidden. I think we we hid a few things as well of of our own little messages in the in deep in because all the calligraphy is all handwritten.
1: Can you expand on some of the things that you sort of snuck into these series in Prisoner of Azkaban or otherwise?
0: Yeah. What did I, what? What don't we know? What What will we never notice that you know?
2: Probably quite boring for other people, but the 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 thing with graphic designers, and we 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 keep pretending that someone else should be doing it. But the bottom line is that we have to write copy as well, and we're not journalists and we're not writers. But it seems to become more and more the That's case the man, that. Man. that that graphic designers are expected to come up with copies. So, for example, the Daily Prophet newspapers and and the the books. Um, part of the design uh, responsibility is to come up with the copy. So we more than likely will bring in funny stories about our friends and family. And uh, plenty of those people have have written and illustrated the books and and uh, and edited the newspapers and taken the photographs. You know, so we learned quite early on that it just doesn't work visually to write nonsense as copy it looks human beings are too sort of smart to notice that that's you know if you write literally if you write blah 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 you'll see what that it looks like that so we always thought we might as well put real copy so all the articles in the daily Prophet are all they'll have headlines
0: i love it
2: and also we found out that the the actors liked to have some material that made them feel I remember once um, one of the Weasley twins, I'm afraid I can't remember which one it is, <laughs> said to me, um, I was so grateful to have books that had actual copy in, because I felt like if someone had gone to the trouble of creating that prop for me, then I could jolly well you know, put in as much effort <laughs> in my no, performance no, that's, that's you know, so it was a, it sort of everyone's effort Was
3: All the actors that have been in, like Helena and um, Alan Rickman. When he, they always said that it helped them a lot to get the prop, and it was like a real
2: motivator. I yeah. think you know to, yeah. to know, yes, yeah, Alan Rickman. That that all that writing that happened in the nice. potion making book um, was his. You know, and we thought about what his personality would be like. Would he write in a straight line? Would he be messy? Would he be completely spontaneous and impulsive in the delivery of his of his words? So. Um, all the time you're thinking, Who's, who wrote this? Who made this? Um, and it, it can't be us. Sometimes that's a bit difficult. <laughs> yeah.
0: To that point, I want to know what maybe your conversations with J.K. Rowling were, because if you think about um, a newspaper being printed somewhere, or Hogwarts books being printed somewhere, or even Bertie Bot's factory has to be somewhere, did you ever find out from, from J.K. Rowling, the actual logistics of where some of these institutions might be and the process by which they might create something. I mean, I feel like that might be a really helpful thing for grounding these these items in a in reality, is knowing where maybe they come from. What did you know that that, uh, that she kind of revealed to you?
2: That's a good question. I mean, unfortunately on the – well, not unfortunately. I guess in a way it was fortunate on, on the Harry Potter series. We – we didn't have an awful lot of contact with her from a production point of view. And it was only when some, a very seri- sort of serious approval was needed, like for the Marauder's Map or Beetle the Bard or the Daily Prophet as a concept, mm. the design gets shared with her and get her approval. And I think there was just one, really one occasion that we needed for, to answer your question was when we did the Black Family Tree Tapestry. Mm. Um, she she had mentioned in the fiction a few of the members of the family but of course as designers to represent that visually we needed to know exactly who was in the family tree and who was related to who and and going quite far back maybe stuff that wasn't mentioned in the fiction so in in an instance like that we had to go and ask her can you please enlarge on these few characters and sure enough we very quickly get an exact uh, family tree delivered to (laughs) us Everyone related to her, so that yeah, you know, things like that. But very rarely, I think we were very fortunate that um, she handed over, she entrusted her work to all the you know all the filmmakers and in, to interpret. Um, and and I guess in terms of like you know, it, it's a good question because it's something we often have to think, which people don't realise is like. Yeah. How was this made? Where was this printed? Who were like in the Wizarding World? Do they have factories? Do they have electricity? Do they have printers? You know. So these sort of conversations happen quite a lot in the art department, um, in terms of the set dressing and but I the. I think
3: the, the the general contest was that everything has to be produced. Nothing. Yeah. Different.
2: Yeah. You can't just magic it. Just yeah. Because it's, yeah.
3: That's right. So, tried, so this is always. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. We went. Uh, yeah.
3: for example, like the Fibler Loves good. Loves good. On his house, we had like a massive printing press,
2: Which you hardly see in the film, but we did actually go to the trouble of having, you know, between us and the bookmakers, we had it made with a a sort of, we had to get the newspaper or the the magazine printed on a very heavy kind of um, conveyor belt fabric so so that they could have it actually um, engineered to to whiz round and round and round so it looked like it was being printed because um, we couldn't have done it on paper. Yeah. So there, there are, to answer your question, there, are, there were situations where you did have to think about the process, or even with the Weasley products, we thought, well, they're teenage twins. They wouldn't really be very sophisticated in how their production techniques, <laughs> so we deliberately designed everything to look like it was quite badly printed and um, and done cheaply and quickly and as much as possible, and it was all about selling quantity and volume.
1: Well, speaking about selling, um, you established the Printorium, an online store that sells some of your work, you know, what's the item that's most requested?
2: Well, uh, bizarrely, and this is quite nice for us, I think that the Quidditch World Cup poster, which you hardly see in the film, it was everything we sell was made for the film, Um, but it's barely seen in the film, but it's really reassuring for us because one of the reasons we set up the business was to give people an opportunity to see... And and enjoy and collect some of the work that we spent so long doing for the film, but didn't quite make it into the cut. Um, so it's, it's always there in the background. Yeah. You know? So it's rewarding to know that actually people really want to to collect that kind of work that that they feel is has the Harry Potter flavour and and spirit. But it. But even though they didn't quite see it. And then of course there's the very popular things like.
3: Um, the wanted posters, yeah. uh, and the Daily Prophet, Marau this month yeah. portion book, yeah. Oh, yeah, but it's quite when people real like discover those things that you now were there hidden, and they and after they go and watch the film
2: again, they say, "Oh, yes, I could see a little bit behind yeah. Harry, and so yeah, it think it's given us a great opportunity to give those things a little bit of life, otherwise they just end up on a hard drive somewhere yeah.
0: Well, okay. So I wanna, we want to end with um, a lightning round. Uh, essentially, you know, I've got a list of some other iconic items we haven't discussed yet, and I just want your your quick, uh, your immediate reaction when you hear these words, like your 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 first memory of these. Cool. Okay. All right. So lightning round starting now. So tell me your first memory of the serious black. Have you seen this wizard poster? Oh,
2: well, it's him. I mean, he's. I, I... And
3: that was the first one that We wanted to do, and and uh, and was on Harry Potter three, that was still the of magic hadn't been uh, transformed yet, like they did on Harry Potter five. So it was still a little bit winsy Windy, windy yeah. yeah,
2: but it's but it's all about him. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah, we need to make
3: sure that his face wasn't yeah. the same, no the for sure, but again this uh, it is funny we got to that as well because that is one of the very popular graphics that people collect
1: then, how about the uh, umbrage inflicted? I must not tell lies scar
2: oh well, I mean this is a wonderful moment in harry potter is, is the kind of um the paradox between um good and evil and how. Evil can be kind of cloaked in this sugary, um, sugary coating, which, which she embodies so beautifully. And and, and so everything we designed for her um, was about um, deception and, and yeah, yeah. And seemingly sweet, um, but sickening and even underneath.
0: (laughs) Okay. What about Horcruxes? You guys designed a few Horcruxes, Uh, which one stands out?
2: Well, for me, I, I think the um, the locket because I had it was just great to be able to give them that opportunity to design that and I went to the museums in London to research historic pieces of jewellery and was inspired by a, a Spanish pendant and a crystal pendant which which kind of started from there and I got to hold it in my hand and it, so it was really lovely to to tie those ends you know the sort of real historical pieces and and bring them. You know, give them life in in the in the fiction, and it did have life that yeah. that piece. You know.
1: And speaking of props, what comes to mind for the Time Turner?
3: Oh, I really want one.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, we need it a lot at work. <laughs> um, again, just what a joy to be able to design something that's um, that's so significant in in the story. And and it's all again, it's all about the story. And and this little um, if you look closely, there's two little riddles as well that are engraved into the. Um, into the, the profiles of the of the um, of of the rings of the teeth. Um, so again, wanting to combine something beautiful but practical, you know, it had to tell the story. All right. What about um, chocolate frog cards? Oh, well, I, you know, this is the this thing we haven't mentioned at all in in this conversation is the humor in Harry Potter. I mean, there's so much. So much humor, and people forget because of lots of darkness um, that it 's just um embedded with with loads of, of funny quirky stuff and which is quite british and I think that whole chocolate frog scene is is that as well it just opens you up to that whole um, humour and yeah. the, the, the funny side of of the magic world
3: because in the books no everyone fights not to have they wanted to be on a chocolate mm. frog
2: and also you've got to take take you into childhood and that's what we did as kids didn't we collect things and fight over them
0: (laughs) (laughs) as our last question here you know you you worked on so many incredible things now over those years is there anything that if you looked around your office right now is there anything Potter that you've kept or just something you really fell in love with that you sort of represents your your work on the series that's your your own souvenir now
3: I think it's our selection of 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 reference that we are crazy about collecting, like little labels and, and 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 old books. We have so much that we might have to move next year to a bigger place because there's no more space.
2: <laughs> and perhaps without that prompt of having to do for the film, we perhaps wouldn't have built such a huge library of reference. And you know, we we do not count on the internet for that. It's all it's all trying to find.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: um, i mean it's, a, it's okay but it's but um we'd always say that to people just you know f- find interesting books on anything that, that that makes you tick you know even if it's like a a book on um drain covers from the 19th century in new york i don't know
3: <laughs> yeah and this is one of the things that when young non-graphic designers come to us and that for advice we always say that please no, build up your own library and your Reference those mm. thing because it's so important and and just not just rely on a, on a, on the a computer and on. A but that's
2: yes. These are, this isn't really answering your question. No, no, as a piece of <laughs> no. But <laughs> we have
3: well, we have our own minutes of magic IT card. Yeah, that is a very <sighs> cool thing to
2: have. With oh, that's faces. so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we work there.
1: And looking ahead, what can we expect from your work on Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them?
2: Well, you'll have to wait and see. Because um, but, but
3: before we say that we are so happy not to be back with Stuart and and David uh, and David and 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 with Joe as well because it, 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 there is so much to still to, to tell about the Wizarding World. Yes, yes. And yeah.
2: So I think I think you're going to have to wait and see because obviously there's only so much we can say about that. But it just it we're definitely sort of challenged by by new stuff, a new period in time, as you know. Um, and being we, in America
3: as well. Yeah,
2: it? so quite exciting um, for us, basically, to work in a different, you know, specific period of time. I think that was the, the most interesting yeah. thing.
3: Yeah. And such a
2: great period. I mean, wow. The 1920s, is,
3: yeah, is incredible. Yeah. I think it's our favourite I I I would love to have the time time to go back to the 1920s. (laughs) (laughs) I love it.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for calling in and being a part of this. You are such legends now in the Harry Potter universe. And uh, thanks for sharing your stories. Thank you very much. Have a good good one. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye. Well, that's it for episode three. Prisoner of Azkaban, thank you to the folks of Mina Lima, And thank you to you, listener, for joining us for Prisoner of Azkaban. Next week is Goblet of Fire.
1: Woo, big old tournament.
0: And our special guest, Yule Ball Dress. That's all I'm going to say.
1: So guys, subscribe on iTunes, rate us, share with your friends. And be sure to send us an email with your thoughts and comments, binge at ew.com. Or you can tweet us at C Molly Smith
0: or at Mark Snedeker. Otherwise, we'll see you guys here next week.